If you have your Bible, uh, grab it and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. As always, if you do not have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a blue one either on the end of your pew or the pew in front or behind you. Or feel free to pull out a a device, a phone, a tablet that has a a Bible app on it, whatever you prefer. Uh, Open your Bible, turn your Bible on, and go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. This morning we are looking at uh, Romans 15 verses 1 through 13. So I will read them for us and as always then we will pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word together. This is what Paul writes. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we. We do not dare to come to your word without your help. We we believe that. That your spirit, Father, inspired Paul as he wrote these words. We, we believe that Paul did not write these on his own, but he wrote them under the inspiration of the spirit working in him and through him to put these words on paper, which you have preserved for 2000 years so that we may still have them. And Father, we, we know that while the spirit inspired these these words to be written, we need him to open our eyes to understand them. And so, Spirit, we pray that you would provide illumination. That you would help us to see, to understand, to know, to believe. And then to go and do. To go and tell. To proclaim, to share, to live. So, Father, help us. Help us as we again return to this discussion of the strong and the weak. Help us to encourage one another, to welcome one another. As you have welcomed us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, if you're visiting with us this morning or maybe you've, you've missed the last couple of weeks and are joining us back again, you're here at the end of a three part series that we've been spending a few weeks on here in, in Romans 14 and 15. Now, I won't give you a full recap or a breakdown of everything that we've been saying over the last two weeks, but I do think that a quick recap is helpful for, for you to, to understand where we are coming from so that because it influences this passage that I just read, I also think that it'll be a, a quick refresher for those of us that have been here uh, just to be reminded of what Paul has been saying. Now, this section that we are in and concluding this morning started back at the beginning of Romans 14, as Paul was discussing how the gospel applies to the unity within the church. Now, every one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, whether it's Romans or Corinthians or, or Galatians, every one of his letters uh, is written with a purpose. It's written for a reason. It's not just that Paul decided one day, you know what, I should write my buddies in Galatia and see how they're doing. He heard about a problem, an issue that had arisen in the church. And he said, I need to write this. I need to address this. I need to write a letter that would help resolve this issue. And Romans is no different. While Paul has not been to Rome and he has not personally planted or been with this church, he has heard of a disagreement. He has heard of a problem that has begun to arise within the Roman church. And since this church has not had any apostolic leadership, any any one of the apostles teaching them the gospel, he's concerned that they may not have a full understanding of the gospel. And that this problem might be arising because they have not yet considered how the gospel applies to their lives together. And so this is why he spends so much of, the, of this letter, the first 11 chapters, unpacking the gospel to, to set a foundation so that he can address the, the issue more clearly. He discusses the depth of sin for both Jews and Gentiles and how we are saved by faith in Christ and all that this salvation brings to the life of the believer. And now as he has slowly been building up to this section, which many commentators and pastors believe that Romans 14 and 15 is the climax of Romans. This is why Paul wrote this letter. It's this issue. A couple weeks ago, I introduced you to this, the, the main idea of this section. That we as Christians must not allow minor disagreements to turn into major divisions. And the reason that this is so important is, is because if the aim of the gospel of Christ is to bring together the Gentile nations and to bring them in with the people of Israel into one corporate international people of God, then when the church divides, the gospel is undermined. And Paul teaches in this way to, to encourage the church not to undermine the gospel that they are both believing and proclaiming in Rome. And so as a way of reminder, so that we, we, we kind of catch up on what this issue is that's plaguing the Roman church, is that there was a disagreement over non-essential practices for Christians. About whether or not Christians should or should not practice certain things in their daily living. And Paul lists uh, three of these that threaten the unity of the church. He talks about eating meat or eating only vegetables. He talks about honoring certain days of the week over others like Sabbath or, or Jewish festival days. And the third one he mentions in, in 14 is drinking wine. 
Jewish Christians, you, you, you see, they believed that Christians best honored Christ by not eating meat because they couldn't be sure of how it was prepared. And they didn't want to violate the Old Testament laws of, of food laws. And so by observing, they also observed the Sabbath and they observed the other festival days of the years because they believed that God had, had given them this calendar and that they honored him by obeying them and by observing these days. Gentile Christians believed they could eat whatever they wanted. That Christ had freed them from the burden of the law. That they could treat all days of the same and, and honor Christ all through it, through it all. And this was a, a minor disagreement. This was not a, a big to-do. The church was not blowing up and fist-fighting in the, in the pews over this issue. This was not how... It was not yet that big. But Paul knows that it could be. Paul knows that it, it could turn into something much bigger. He knows that this minor disagreement could has the potential to split the church. And then you would have a Jewish Christian church on this part of Rome and a Gentile Christian church on this part of Rome. And then as these two churches went out and proclaimed the gospel to non-believers and said, God is bringing all people together in Christ. The people that could then look and be like, well, you mean like you people with the two churches that can't be together? God's bringing you together. The gospel would be undermined. And so what we've seen over the last two weeks is this call for unity. And Paul has labeled the, the Gentile Christians as those who are strong in faith. Their faith is stronger in that they understand the freedom of Christ in these smaller, non-essential issues. And the Jewish Christians are those that Paul calls weaker in faith. Now, Paul does not ever condemn the weaker faith Christians, but he is encouraging and spent so much time encouraging the strong to help the weak, to, to lay aside some of their freedoms so that the weak could, be, could benefit. Paul doesn't tell them to stop doing these things, but he says simply stop doing them in the presence of the weaker brother or sister. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't cause them to fall. But do what is good for them, building them up. This morning, in the, the last part of, of this section, Paul gives us, really, it breaks down into two major headings. He gives us first an exhortation, another command, a way for us to live in obedience. And then that exhortation is followed by an explanation. Where we see Christ as both our model and our motivation. He is the one who shows us how to do this. And shows us the reason why we must. Because here's, here's the thing. Christ is both our Savior and our model. If He, the strong, has welcomed us, the weak, then we have no reason, whether we are weak in faith or strong in faith, to ever exclude those that are not like us. Especially if they are a brother or a sister in Christ. That's the, that's the main idea from, from this passage today. Christ has welcomed you, believer. So you have no reason not to welcome any other brother or sister in Christ on any grounds whatsoever. You must welcome them because Christ has welcomed you. So we'll look at the, this exhortation of Paul's, his, his command first, and then we'll, we'll look at the, the, exer, the explanation, the example of Christ. So that this exhortation, it's, it boils down quite simply in verses 1 and 2. The exhortation is this, the strong must carry the weak. The strong must carry the weak. 
He says it in the first two verses. You can see it there with me. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. There are three pieces here for this exhortation. We'll, we'll hit these quickly. First, the strong have an obligation to the weak. The strong have an obligation to the weak. Now, we, we've spent some time over the last few weeks discussing the freedom of Christ that we have as believers, that we are not bound to a legal code or a list of do's and don'ts. The one binding restriction that God has placed on us as Christians is to do what will bring the most glory and the most honor to Christ. That if you can practice something and you can bring honor and glory to Christ through it, then you are free to do it. But if you can't, if Christ is not glorified by an action, by a word, by a thought, then don't do it. And that's the, a freedom that we have in the gospel. But as important as this freedom is, we have to also understand the, the duty that each of us has to one another as believers and as members of the body of Christ. Yes, you are, as an individual, are free to glorify Christ in all the various ways that you can. But you must understand that you do not exist as a believer simply as an individual. You belong to a people. You belong to a group, to a community. And, and you cannot separate your faith and your status as a believer in Christ. You cannot remove that from the body of Christ to which you belong. Because as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the people of God, you, believer, you, Christian, have a duty, an obligation to the other believers around you. But Paul gets more specific here, and I think we should too. Paul is not talking that each of us have an obligation, which we do. But he says specifically, the strong, those who are strong in the faith, have an obligation to those that are weaker. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you are strong in the faith, if you have a, a fuller grasp of theological truth, if you have a greater understanding of freedoms in Christ, if you have a, a greater desire and knowledge and insight into his word. If your faith is stronger, then you have a duty, an obligation to show greater love, to show greater care, to show greater support and encouragement to your weaker brothers and sisters. And I think there's a, a danger here for the strong that, that I want to, to address. Because the, the strong in faith, if, if you're not careful can easily become arrogant and proud in their strength. And proud people tend to look down on those that they deem less than themselves. And so the strong in faith can easily be tempted to despise or to, to look down on weaker brothers and sisters. But what this pride fails to see, what the strong in faith fail to see when we, when we think this way, is that the strong in faith did not become strong on their own. At one point, every strong believer was a weak believer. And they became strong, they grew in strength by the working of the Holy Spirit within them and by stronger brothers and sisters pouring into them. Teaching them, encouraging them to grow in their faith. No one is born a strong Christian. 
Every believer starts out weak and becomes strong by grace and by the help of other stronger believers. So if you are here this morning and you are strong in the faith, you you consider yourself to be one of these strong people that Paul is talking to. Then you need to understand that you did not become strong on your own. You did not reach where you are in your faith by luck or by self-determination or by your own self-sufficient strength. None of those things are real. You were helped. You were taught. You were encouraged. You were instructed. You were poured into by stronger believers who helped you grow in strength. And if that's true of you, then you now have the duty to turn around and find a weaker brother or sister and return the favor. To help the weak. That is your duty. That is your obligation. That is your job. But what does this obligation entail? So not only do the strong have an obligation, here is the obligation. You have an obligation, Paul says in verse 1, to bear with the failings of the weak. I think that we have, there's two ways to look at that word bear. I think on one hand, we can see it as sort of a, a patient endurance. Right? You've, you've just got to put up with them. You've just got to bear with them. You can't get rid of them, so you just sort of got to ride it out and endure their weaknesses, endure their, their presence and their failings until maybe one day they grow. So just bear it out. On the other hand, this word could mean carry. It is not your job to just ride it out and to put up with the weak. It is your job to carry the weak, to bear them up. And hopefully our children's story kind of showed you which word Paul is using here. That we are not called as, as strong in faith. You are not called to, to simply just put up with the weak. But you are called to actually help them carry the burden. You are to, to help them and to, to bear up under their failings. Because that's the obligation of the strong. Because you are strong, it means that you can carry bigger burdens. And because they are weak, it means that they might struggle. And so you are strong, and therefore you must use your strength to help those who do not have it. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we bear the weak? Paul helps us, and he says, by working to please them. He says, to please, let each of us please his neighbor. And this could be another tricky understanding for us, because... We could think and move into this arena of people pleasing. And that's not what Paul has in mind here, but I, I need it to be to be clear because people pleasing is a dangerous lifestyle that is very tempting for many of us, myself included. But people pleasing is, is a lifestyle that, that tempts us to do what will make the people around us the happiest. And that may not sound like that bad of a thing. But at some point, the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel is going to make someone unhappy. It's going to offend. It's going to upset. It's going to confront. And someone who is more focused on people pleasing, for example, will cease preaching truth. Because it might make someone unhappy. It might offend. It might upset. Paul's not talking about people pleasing here. 
When he says, let each of one of us please his neighbor, he gives two qualifiers, two reasons and two ways for us to do this. He says to please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. Now, as we've seen in the past two weeks, one of the clearest ways that we can work to please our our weaker brothers and sisters is by setting aside some of the freedoms that we have in Christ. And this will ultimately be for his or her good. You can show them how to live for the glory of Christ. You can help them grow by, by choosing to carry some of the weight that they are struggling with. You do this not for yourself, not to feel better about yourself, but to please them for their good. Again, we we see this to build him up because you are strong. You are given the responsibility to help the weak become strong. That's what Paul means by building him up. Do you have the knowledge and insight provided by the spirit? You understand scripture often better than, than others do. And so you must then teach those who lack that understanding. The strong help the weak by building them up until they are strong. And this cycle repeats. Strong, help the weak until the weak become strong, who then help the weak until the weak become strong, who then help the weak until the weak become strong. And on and on the church grows and flourishes. That's that's the exhortation. The strong in faith have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please themselves, but to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what we are called to do. But why? Why are we called to do this? We do this for one another. Here's the explanation of the passage. We do this for one another because Christ has done this for us. And Paul gives us, <coughs> excuse me, Paul gives us in the passage three fours that, that guide us. And this not me being clever. It's the word for F-O-R. He gives us three fours that, that help us understand this explanation. Look at the first one, verse three, four, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is what this is. Paul is quoting Psalm 69 here, a Davidic Psalm that that is applied to Christ in the New Testament. It could also read the sins of those who sinned against you, God, fell on me. This is what Christ has done, isn't it? He took our sins, for we are the ones who sinned against God. Christ took them on himself. He bore the failings of the weak. Christ set aside his freedoms and his liberties and even his glory to come down and to save you. No one can argue that Christ is anything but strong. And no one can argue that we are anything but weak. And that the image that Paul is painting here is that he is the strong brother who has carried you, the weak one. He has carried your failings. He has worked to please you. He has done this for your good, to give you ultimate pleasure in the presence of the Father. For again, as the psalmist says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ has done this for you, for your good and to build you up. He is the model, the example to follow. Christ did this for you, therefore you must do it for one another. That's the first four. For Christ did not please himself. The second four is found in verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think it's important to understand that the message of the gospel and its application are not things that Paul is just pulling out of thin air. Like Paul, Paul writes Romans not just off the top of his head. He writes these truths from Romans, basing it in the Old Testament scriptures. He's not making it up. But he is pointing the church here in this passage, go study God's word. Go study the scriptures. See it for yourselves. We see in verses 9 through 12 of the passage that Paul quotes several passages of scripture. He quotes at least four, possibly five with a a combination quote. But what he does is it it doesn't matter that he just rattles off one after another. What he actually does, there's purpose in the passages he quotes. He quotes one passage from the law. He quotes one from the writings. And he quotes one from the prophets, which are the three major divisions of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And what he's doing by, by, by doing this is he's showing us that the entirety of Scripture, the entirety of the Old Testament, has been building up to this moment. It has been building up to this person of Jesus. That God has promised to bring together from every people, both Jew and Gentile, into one unified group. His people. That was the promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. That through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And these promises that he has given throughout the Old Testament, Paul is saying, these promises are being fulfilled. They have been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, you, believer, must have hope. I mean, today is January 14th. We have you have officially made it two weeks into the new year. And I imagine that that many of you, like like myself, started out the new year with high ambitions called New Year's resolutions. And I imagine that many of them included in some way, shape or form more Bible study. Here we are two weeks in. How many of us want to stand up and admit that we haven't missed a day yet? How many of us want to say that we've we've grown and it is not a cumbersome thing to sit down and read the Bible? I think if you if you struggle with scripture reading and you find it a chore, let me first say you're you're not alone. We we all struggle with this. It is difficult. It is a difficult book for us to understand. But I do believe that this passage should inspire you and motivate you to dive deeper into it. Because Paul says that it is through the scriptures that we find instruction, endurance, and encouragement. Instruction. When you open up God's word and you read here, you learn about what God has done in the past. And you learn about all that he has done in Christ. Your knowledge of Christ grows through this instruction of scripture. But you also get endurance. Because one of the things that you read, especially as you read several books of Scripture from different parts of Scripture, you begin to see the plan of God from the beginning of time being unveiled and unfurled and accomplished over the course of thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That God has not forgotten his promises, that he has not failed to keep a single promise that he's ever made. 
And so for us, when we struggle with trusting his promises, when we fail, when it feels like it's never going to happen. Studying God's word gives us the endurance to hope and to believe that God's word will never fail because it never has. Scriptures give us encouragement. When our faith seems weak, when doubts arise, when temptation seems to win the day, the scriptures bring us back to the truths of the gospel. Truths like Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or the end of Romans 8, where Paul talks about all the things that that may work to remove you from the love of God in Christ. And Paul says, none of these will ever take you away from him. Or we can read about the power to overcome sin, how it does not reside in us, but it resides in the spirit who resides in us. And that we can rest in these promises. These are encouragements that the scriptures give us. So, Christian, let let the scriptures instruct you. Let them teach you endurance. Let them encourage you. Study them. Find hope in them. Because that ultimately is how the weak become the strong. And so Paul says that we have the scriptures to help us grow. To give us hope. Which brings us then to the third and final four. In verse eight. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is this is easily the the climax of the section. It is the, the, the peak of the mountain for all of Romans, not just for this tiny section we've spent the last three weeks in for the entire letter that we've been for an for a year and a half. You want to know why it's so important for Christians to be unified? You want to know why it's such a big deal that the church not tear itself apart, especially over non-essential issues? Then look at all that Christ has done for the church. Look at the work that he has done to bring the church together. Look at what it cost him to purchase the church for himself. And then tell me that these little fights that threaten to rip the church apart, that they don't matter. They matter a great deal. Because you matter a great deal. Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He, the true and only begotten Son of God, he who did not, account, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but made himself nothing, he became a servant. He became a, a, a diakonos, a deacon, a table servant. Now, I know that for us, we hear the word deacon and we, we often attribute it to a position of authority, a position of leadership in the church. That's not the meaning of the word deacon. A deacon was a table servant. A deacon was is someone that uh, this word diakonos implies that it was someone who who waited on tables who filled cups and make sure everyone had their drinks and foods replenished. They were a servant who served and was never noticed. It 
This is someone who cleans plates and washes dishes and serves in the background behind everything else. The Son of God became this for Israel. He came to Israel and he served them through his teaching, through his miracles, through his kindness and through his grace. He served them. And even Jesus told them himself, this is what he did. He says in Mark's gospel, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why would the son of God reduce himself to become a servant like this? Paul says to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The servant heart of Christ to Israel shows that God had not abandoned them, that he had not forgotten the promises that he made. Christ's service proves that God's promises remain true. But I think there's also more to that why in this verse. Why did Christ become a servant? In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It is to this point that Paul then quotes the law, the prophets and the writings. Each of these quotations is not meant to just highlight Paul's knowledge of Scripture, but is to highlight that from the very beginning and throughout the entire Old Testament, God's plan has always involved the salvation of the Gentiles. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. The root of Jesse, that's Jesus, he will come. And even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Christ didn't just come to save Israel. He came so that the Gentiles would glorify God. Christ didn't just come to save the Gentiles. He came to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs to Israel. Christ came to save all of his people by serving them in obedience to death, even death on a cross. Christian, here's here's why all this matters. Here's here's why we spent three weeks talking about these small, non-essential issues in a Roman church 2000 years ago. Unity matters. There is not a single believer within the church, no matter how weak or strong their faith. There's not a single one of us who belongs here for any other reason than the grace of God. The only reason that I stand before you every week is because God has been gracious to me and he saved me. The only reason that any of you come and join in worship with us every week is because God has been gracious to you and he has saved you. Now, you may have a faith that is stronger than most. And you may spend all week studying the word and finding encouragement and pressing on with endurance. You may wrestle with the deeper questions and the deeper mysteries of God. You may ask questions that most of us don't even dream of asking. Or you may have a faith that can barely crawl through the door on Sunday mornings. Because it is so small and weak and feeble that it is just barely holding itself together. You've tried reading the scriptures, but they seem too overwhelming for you. You've tried asking questions, but you just can't get past answers or questions of doubt and questions of suffering and questions that you just can't figure out answers to. 
And your faith may be as strong as a mountain or as weak and feeble as a dying man. But regardless, you are both here because God has been gracious to you and he has saved you. There is no distinction. Both the strong and the weak belong because Christ died for both the strong and the weak. Christian, if Christ, if Christ loves your brother or sister enough that he would die for them, that he would suffer the wrath of God for them, that he would be crushed so that they would not be. How dare you condemn them? How dare you despise them? Christ neither condemns them nor despises them. What gives you the right to do so? He died for every believer, for the weak and the strong alike. You belong to him and they belong to him. Now, I want to end this morning by, by pointing you to two prayers that Paul offers in this passage. First, it's in verse five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think, side note, maybe if you, if you will, I, I think it's wonderful that Paul says that we gain endurance and encouragement from the scriptures and then immediately calls God the God of endurance and encouragement. The one who gives us these things, he, he, he gives them through his word. God is a God of endurance. He sustains. God is a God of encouragement. He encourages. How does God give endurance and encouragement? He gives them through his word. If you need these things, this is where you go. But the heart of this prayer that Paul gives is for unity. It is for harmony within the church. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there are. I'm sure that there are some people within this church that might grate on your nerves every now and then. And maybe that's a polite way to put it. There might be some people sitting in this room that you just would rather just sit on the other side of the room for. Because it's just easier. They bug you, you bug them. There's just disagreement and it's easier for us to just not talk. Maybe there's some unresolved tension. Some issues that you would rather ignore than deal with. But here's, here's the thing, here's the message that Paul is preaching here. That other person, the one who irritates, the one who aggravates, the one who grates on you. Christ died for them. The same way he died for you, he died for them. And the reality is that our future as Christians is that for the rest of eternity, you will stand side by side with this person and sing of the praises of Christ together for the next billion years. And so you may try to avoid them and sit on the other side of the room now, but where do you think they're going? You're going to spend eternity with them. Because Paul points out, he says that we will stand together, that we will. He prays that God would give us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way he phrases it. 
He uses a, a, a very beautiful, musically loaded word, harmony. Because harmony doesn't mean that we all have to agree on all things. Harmony doesn't mean that we all sing at the same note and at the same time, at the same pitch and volume. Harmony means that different voices and different sounds coming together to sing the same song can be a beautiful thing. It can make the sound that much greater. And within the church, we have both strong in faith and weak in faith. We have people singing weakly. We have people singing strongly. We have people singing alto and people singing soprano. We have people singing tenor and everywhere in between. And here we are with one voice in harmony singing together for the glory of Christ. The point of this prayer that Paul gives is that you're going to spend eternity with these brothers and sisters. You're both going to be singing together forever. And you both have the same reason for singing. Christ died to save you both. So therefore, Paul says in verse uh, verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But then the second prayer that Paul gives, and the one that we'll end on, is at the very end, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I think it's this verse that, that leads so many to view this section of Romans as sort of the, the peak of the mountain, the climax of the letter. It seems like a, a big recap and a final prayer all in one. Because Paul has been talking about these things, these traits of hope and joy and peace and believing in the spirit. He's been talking about them going all the way back to chapter five and even before then. But this prayer sort of brings it all to a close. And here's the gist of it. Here's what Paul prays for. Over the last year and a half of, of studying Romans together, we have talked a lot about how the gospel changes you as an individual. That Christ saves you. He frees you. He redeems you. He gives you peace. He gives you joy. He gives you hope. And all of these are incredible blessings to us as individuals. They are all true. But Paul's prayer here in verse 13 is that individual Christians would bring all of the individual blessings that God has given to them in Christ. And that they would bring them into the corporate gathering of the church. And share it with one another. And so what he's saying is he's saying if you've got joy in Christ, then let there be joy among the church. If you've got if you've got if you have found hope in Christ, then then let there be hope to be found among the church. If you have found peace in believing the truth of the gospel, then let there be peace in believing the gospel among the church. Because Jesus saves individuals. But he doesn't leave them as individuals. He brings them to a people who can share in his blessings together and who can praise his name with one harmonious voice for the rest of eternity. You, Christian, belong to the people of God. And every brother or sister around you, whether they are your best friend or your biggest rival in this church, they belong to the same people of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Pray with me.
Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see and understand that these small issues can quickly become big things. God, help us to pursue unity. Help us to pursue togetherness as a church. God, we pray that any unresolved issues, any small disagreements would be resolved today. It would not fester, would not, would not boil over, but they would be washed, cleansed by your grace. Help us to seek forgiveness if we need forgiveness. Help us to seek to repent if we need to repent. To apologize, to confess to one another. And by your grace, bring us closer in unity and closer to you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.